Welcome to the Siski Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. All right. So Five Guys, man, it's one of the best cheeseburgers I've ever had in my life. You guys ever been to Five Guys Burgers and Fries? Man, it's killer. They make a mean cheeseburger. And they're Cajun fries. Am I wrong? The Cajun fries are definitely the way to go. Uh, and they got the peanuts. You know, you go in and you can crack the peanuts while you're waiting. For me, as a person who is just like hangry, and I need, when I'm hungry, I'm like, I need to eat now. The peanuts, I appreciate the peanuts. But no matter what five guys you go to, uh, you, it, 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 there's something that's the same about every single restaurant. Every restaurant you go into, it's plastered all over the walls. You guys know with what? With these compliments, with uh, these publications where people are like, man, Five Guys is the best ever. I can't live without their Cajun fries. Uh, there's no indulgence or satisfaction like inhaling a Five Guys cheeseburger at just the right pace. There, there's all of these things. It's nothing but accolade upon accolade, compliment upon compliment. Well, theologians... Bible commentators, saints of old, man, you should hear what they have to say about the book of Romans. Boy, it's nothing but accolade upon accolade and compliment upon compliment. Uh, You know, Martin Luther, he was saved as he read through the book of Romans when he came to Romans 1.17. That was a pivotal point in his life. And he says that this passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. Uh, He was born again. And the Reformation really began in his heart. We're in this place this morning studying God's word freely. Instead of having somebody read it to us in Latin because of the Reformation that took place, the work that began in Martin Luther's heart that day as he read through the book of Romans. It's been said of Romans that it's the most profound work in existence. The cathedral of the Christian faith. It's been said that when anyone understands this epistle, he has a passage opened to him to understand of the whole scripture. The compendium of Christian doctrine. Uh, It's been said that it is the chief part of the New Testament and the perfect gospel, the absolute epitome of the gospel. Another said beyond question the most dramatic of all New Testament letters. I've heard it said that uh, if I were stranded on a desert island and can pick but one book of the Bible to be my companion, it would undoubtedly be the epistle of the Romans. I've heard people say that, uh, you know, when your Bible falls open, it should naturally open up to the book of Romans because it's just so chock full of practical, useful encouraging, correct, all the doctrines of the Bible we can find laid out for us in the book of Romans. Now, I can't really stand up here this morning and say the book of Romans is better than any other book, right? We can't say one book is better than another book because the Bible says that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine and reproof, correction, instructions in righteousness, that the man of God might be equipped for every good work. So, so all of God's word is good for us in, in the sense that it's God's word and it leads us and directs us. But there's something special about the, the book of Romans because in the book of Romans, Paul lays some things out for us so clearly. Paul lays out for us and shows us the absolute depravity and the utter failure of man. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. 
Uh, there's none righteous, no, not one, is what Romans tells us. Uh, that the wrath of God is upon the unrighteous. Romans declares that the wages of sin is death. Paul goes on to show the mercy and grace that's available through faith in Jesus, that the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, that he demonstrated, God demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul describes and explains to us how we can obtain this free gift of salvation, that it's by grace through faith that we are saved, that if we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that Jesus was buried and, and resurrected three days later, then we're saved. Uh, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then Paul outlines for us really the result of salvation, that since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and, and that there's nothing that can separate us from his love. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that was the Romans road to salvation. I hope some of you were familiar with that and you knew where I was going. We should be familiar, we should have it highlighted in our Bibles, these verses in Romans that walk us through our need for salvation what salvation is, how to attain it, and what it means for us. Man, it is such a rich, uh, rich chapter of the Bible. And the first few verses, or not verses, pardon me, the first few chapters in the book of Romans, they're actually pretty harsh. As we open up our study and begin to make our way through this book over the next few months, and we're going to find that the first few chapters are just loaded up with these really accusations that, 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 that man is guilty, that we have failed utterly, that we are guilty and that the wrath of God is what we deserve, uh, that humanity is basically toast. And I love that Paul lines that out, not because I like a good spiritual beating, but because it's important for us to understand that we need a Savior before we can accept a Savior. See, nobody cares about being saved until they realize that they need saving. Nobody cares about the parachute until the plane starts to go down. Really, are the seat cushions going to save you in the case of it? I don't know. They go through it every time you fly. If you land, I don't know. The whole tuck your head thing, I'm skeptical of that too. I'll just be honest with you. But nobody cares about the parachute until the plane goes down. Nobody cares about the, the lifeboat until the ship starts to sink. The Titanic is a perfect example of that, right? That luxury liner that was dubbed unsinkable. They were so convinced, they were so confident that that vessel was unsinkable. They were overconfident, really, in the strength of that vessel. They were so unconcerned that that ship could ever sink that there were less than half the lifeboats necessary on that ship when it went down. One of the most, it was one of the greatest disasters in all of maritime history, the Titanic. The majority of the people on board died. But they ate, and they drank, and they danced the night away, just completely unaware that they were headed for disaster. And that's such an appropriate and uh, just real picture of humanity today. 
Right? We eat and we drink and we dance and, and we're just completely unaware of the reality of eternity. And so here in Romans, Paul goes through all these doctrines and he's just, he's sounding the alarm. He's running around on the deck of the ship saying, man, this thing is not forever, guys. This life is going to come to an end. Are you ready? Have you had your sin dealt with? And so I'm excited to get into the book. of We're not really going to get too far this morning. And that's one of the other things, man. It is rich. We're going to take this in bite-sized pieces. We'll get through the introduction. My goal was to get through 15 verses this morning. We made it through, I think, seven, uh, the first service. And I think we'll probably just stick with that goal uh, for us. And so we'll just dive in. Verse 1 of uh, chapter 1. And by the way, this book, it, it's, it's a letter that was written to the, the church in Rome. Paul was in Corinth. He was on his third missionary journey. And he writes this letter to a real church that was there. And I love that. You know, the New Testament begins with the Gospels, the story of Jesus and his ministry. Uh, And then it goes into Acts, which is the birth of the church. And then after that, we get into the epistles, these letters written to the different churches. And what I love about that is it's so applicable to us. It's written to us. You know, as we've studied through Psalms and many of the historical chapters in the Old Testament, we said, well, this was written to the Jew, but it's applicable to us as well in these ways. And it was. But this was written with the church in mind. We are the church. So these letters, they were written to a historical church, but they're so applicable to us. And there's so much for us, uh, so much in them for us. So verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, Called to be saints, grace to you and peace from, our, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul here is the undisputed author of the book of Romans. It opens up by saying Paul. He, 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 he identifies himself at the beginning of the letter. Now, when we write letters, and we don't write letters. I asked the first service this. Has anybody written a real handwritten letter to another? Not a bill or anything. Like a real letter. Has anybody written a letter within the last month. Hey, God bless you guys. Keep it going. That's what I say. I think that's awesome. Most of the time now we write emails, but it's still the same, right? We sign our names where? At the end of the letter. Well, in these days, it was customary to start off with who the letter was from. And so this letter is from Paul the Apostle. Now, I want to take a minute to discuss who Paul is. We really learned of Paul when we studied through Acts, but it's been a while, and so I wanted to give us just a quick refresher. Because Paul could easily be considered uh, one of the most influential, influential Christians to have ever walked the face of the earth. Uh, after his miraculous conversion that we'll take a look at here in just a little bit, uh, he went on three missionary journeys, 10,000 miles by foot and by boat. He traveled from Jerusalem up uh, you know, around the Mediterranean, all through Asia Minor, brought the gospel into Europe. And Paul went everywhere. He He shared the gospel with Jews. He shared the gospel with Gentiles, with the rich, 
with the poor. He shared the gospel with nobodies and with the working man, with the intellectual, with the social elite, with kings, with soldiers, with guards, with prisoners. Paul would share the gospel one-on-one with you. Or there's cases where he, he shared with tens of thousands of people. Basically, whenever there was an opportunity to preach the gospel, man, he took it and he preached the gospel. And it was wonderful. There was much fruit that came from his life. We're studying his letters even today. How amazing that is. God did an amazing work through Paul's life. But he faced much trial and difficulty as he just served the Lord. Listen to his account of some of his difficulties there in 2 Corinthians 11. Uh, He described these trials. He says, I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. Been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger from in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from... There's not a lot of places that Paul hasn't been in danger. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And then Paul tells us, or not Paul, but tradition tells us that Paul was actually killed for his beliefs in spreading the gospel, but not before he wrote a huge portion of the New Testament. First uh, and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, uh, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. And he, he, it was amazing. The Lord did such a crazy work through this man. And Paul, if you were to look at him, history records that he was short, fat, bald, hook-nosed, and had weepy eyes and a funny voice. You know, when you're picking, like, someone to represent you and to go places, like, I don't know if people are going to listen to this little pipsqueak, right? But the Lord did an amazing work through his life. But before Paul was Paul the Christian, he was Saul the Pharisee. He was a fervent Jewish nationalist. He was one who adhered strictly to the law. He was a a, a leader in the Sanhedrin, the 71-member Jewish. It it would be like our Supreme Court. It'd be even more powerful than that. It would be like Congress and the Supreme Court uh, rolled all into one. He was a very powerful man, and he was so zealous for Judaism uh, that he was blinded, and he used that uh, that spirit of zealousness to it drove him into this place where he was really a persecutor of Christians. He was one who would go from town to town looking for church meetings so that he could drag Christians out of their house, beat them, make an example of them, throw them in prison, or, or, or some he even had killed. That's what he spent his time doing. So how did Saul, the Pharisee, become Paul, the Christian? That's like two different worlds, two different lives. What happened in this man's life? I'll tell you what happened in this man's life. Jesus happened in this man's life. He came face to face with Jesus, and Jesus transformed his life. That pivotal point when he was on the road to Damascus, it's recorded for us in Acts chapter 9. 
where he had papers in hand. He went to the authorities and said, I need permission officially to persecute these dangerous, pesky, irritating Christians. And he had all the authority to go and just wreak havoc on the church. And he was on his way to do just that. But his life was changed forever. You guys know how the story goes. It was on the road to Damascus that this bright light from heaven more than just caught his eye. It, it took over his life. It, he fell to the ground face down. And, and he cried out, what's going on? And, and this, this voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and, and Saul replied, who are you? And Jesus clearly spoke to him and said, I, I am Jesus, the one that you're persecuting. And that day, when Paul came face to face with Jesus and his life was flipped upside down, he was never the same from that moment on. And what a wonderful testimony that is, that he met Jesus and his life was never the same. I hope that is said of us, that there's this definitive moment in my life and in your life where I came face to face with the person of Jesus and my life was never the same. He was blinded that day. He, he was reduced to really a man who was just groping for direction on the ground. And the Lord sent him to a man named Ananias. He was a Christian, Ananias was. And Ananias, boy, he was skeptical. Paul had a reputation. He's like, Lord, you want me to take care of this guy? He's going to murder me in my sleep. But Ananias walked in obedience. And he prayed for Paul. And Paul's eyes were healed. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he immediately went out and began to preach the gospel. And I love Paul's story. It's so encouraging to me because it's a reminder that God can save anybody. If the Lord can save Saul, this hypocritical man who's so full of himself and so full of pride, who has gone to the place to where he's murdering people as a favor to God, that the Lord can take that man's life and save it and transform it and use it for his glory, man, then the Lord can save anybody. And I can stand up here on this platform today and I can proclaim to you with all honesty that if the Lord can save me, the Lord can save anybody as well. How encouraging is that? And so I just want to, to tell you this morning that if you're in this place, maybe you were invited, maybe church isn't your thing, maybe you're not a Christian at all, maybe there's a, 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 a burden of guilt that you pack around, and you say, man, you don't understand the places I've been and the things that I've done. I don't care. Where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And whatever it is you've done, wherever it is you've gone, whatever it is you've said, the blood of Jesus is greater, and he cleanses us from all sin if you're willing and so if you're here in this place, man, plead the blood of Jesus. It's also encouraging for us because as believers, and how many of us have people in our lives that we've been praying for, that the Lord would get a hold of them? For years go by, say, Lord, would you just save them? Would you get a hold of them? And it can be discouraging. We say, I don't know. Don't be discouraged. The Lord can get a hold of anybody. Keep praying. I wonder how many Christians were praying for Paul back in the day as he's beating the tar out of them and ruining their lives, that they would pray that the Lord would get a hold of them. And keep praying. And so Paul, man, I love his story. It's an encouraging one. But as he's writing this letter to the Romans, and we'll talk later as we study through this book, his desire to go there and how the Lord, you know, delayed that and, and all the rest. But as he writes this book to the Romans, he begins with his credentials. Like, who is this guy writing a letter to the church? Why should we listen to you? 
And he begins his list of credentials by saying, and I am a bond servant. Paul, a bond servant. That's the first thing he identifies himself as. What is a bond servant? A bond servant in the Greek is doulos. And that is just kind of, to me, a bond servant's a churchy way to say slave. It's literally what it means, a slave. It means to be owned. A servant has a much better ring to it, I think. But slave is what it means. But slavery in Paul's day was very common. In the Roman Empire, when the letter of Romans was written, a third of the population was in servitude. They were bond servants. They were slaves. And another third had experienced what it was like to be a slave. So two-thirds of the population had a firsthand experience of what it was like to be a slave. So you better believe that when people read Paul's letter and he says, man, I'm a bond servant of Christ, dude, they were tracking right along. They understood exactly what he was saying. Now, we talk about slavery today, and we cringe, and we say, oh, my gosh, that's terrible. And rightfully slow. I mean, we have a dicey history with slavery in the world, in our country. And when we say slavery, you know, the type of slavery that comes to mind is when a man or a woman steals, kidnaps another human being, and forces them into a life of servitude. Now, that's what we think of as slavery. The Bible calls that man-stealing. And that's punishable by death. And so understand that, that people will twist and, and uh, convolute scriptures that talk about slavery to try to say, oh, the Bible is pro-slavery. That's nonsense. It really, that's not what's being uh, discussed here. Uh, this idea of being a bond You were a slave, you were owned, but you weren't kidnapped into it. See, you would become a slave in those days. One common way that you would become a slave is if you were a convicted criminal. You would work off your debt to society. You weren't sitting in prison making your, you know, prison food and getting prison tattoos and working out and getting, but whatever people do. I've never been to prison, so I really don't have a first-hand account. Praise the Lord. I hope to never go to prison. Um, but in those days, you worked. They put you to work. Seems like a pretty good deal to me, if we're going to be honest about it. I mean, it's going to sound like I'm pro-slavery. I'm not. I mean, really. But, uh, I mean, really, I'm not. But th there was a reason. And another reason is if you accrued a debt that you couldn't pay. There was no such thing as bankruptcy. You're going to be like, oh, well, I, sorry. I've got some paperwork I'm going to file, and I'm just going to leave you hanging for the Bible says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And I understand we get in financial situations. I'm not busting anybody's chops about that. It's not what it's about. But the Bible talks about this idea that the slavery, that's what it was. You're a bond servant because you couldn't pay. You would work that debt off. And then when your time was up or when your debt was clear, you'd be set free. Or if seven years came around, it couldn't be any longer than seven years. But here's the thing. At the end of that seven years or when the debt was paid or when the sentence was fulfilled, there were people, there were slaves, bond servants, who said, you know what, actually, I, I want to remain a slave. You say, wait a second, what? Who in their right mind would want to remain a slave? Somebody who had a good master. A, a slave who said, you know what, my life is better with the master than it is without the master because my master is kind and he's loving and he's good. And that existed in that. You owed a debt to me, man. I'd take you in, and I would treat you like my family. You, I mean, you did what I said, and there was no back-talking, but you were loved. And when you wanted to become a bond, a bond slave, you'd say, I want in. I want to be this for life. And you would 
go with the master to the doorpost and you take it all and it punch a hole in your ear and he'd put a hoop in there and that would be an indication. See, what is a, a fashion trend today was a real statement then. It meant that you belonged to the Lord and that's what Paul is saying. He says, I'm a bond servant to Jesus. My life belongs to him by choice. And here's the interesting thing. In John 15, 15, Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. See, from Jesus' perspective, he's not, you're my slaves and you're going to do what I say. Just, no, you're, you're, you're not my friends. But Paul's saying, Lord, I belong to you. My life was bought with a price and I'm choosing to be long to you because life is better than it is without you. And by the way, interesting thing about Paul, Saul, his first name, it means sought after. Interesting, sought after. Remember the first king of Israel, the first Saul? Head and shoulders above all the other men, super handsome, but his heart was far from the Lord. He was full of himself and everybody wanted him. All these years, that name was passed down as like this honor thing. And Paul, what I mean, in his circle, he was a very prestigious dude. He was sought after. But the Lord takes this man who is sought after and transforms his life and changes his name to Paul. Do you know what Paul means? It means little. It means less. I love that. What a cool picture. Lord, less of me and more of you. It's not about me. And that's what Paul's saying. Lord, it's not about me. I want to belong to you. But we would say, some of us, man, I don't like the idea of being owned. I don't like the idea of being a bond servant to Jesus. I'm just going to be neutral. I'll be a good person and I'm just going to do my thing, but I'm not going to be a slave to anybody. It's not the way it works. I'm sorry. You're either a slave to the world and you're in bondage and you're governed by your own lusts and desires or you're set free from your sin and you are a slave to righteousness. That's what the Bible declares. And we get this idea that there's a middle ground that we can just hang out in. It's crazy, but Bob Dylan was right. Man, you're going to serve somebody, either God or the devil. There is no middle ground. And so understand that. And so Paul here, he makes that first thing about it. Paul, a bondservant, I belong to Jesus. I want you guys to know that. And then he called to be an apostle. So this is kind of important because, you know, he's establishing his authority to write this letter to the church. As we read through this, what's, what's your authority to tell us what to do, Paul? You short, little, fat, bald, crook-nosed, weepy-eyed fella. Well, I'm an apostle. Well, what does it mean to be an apostle? Well, an apostle simply means to be one who was sent by one with authority. It means to be a delegate or a messenger. And when you look up the word in the Greek, one of the first definitions really is referring to the 12 apostles. Um, they were called by Jesus directly. You say, well, what gives Paul his authority? He was called by Jesus directly too on the road to Emmaus. Or not Emmaus, but to Damascus. Right there, boom, Jesus said, go. Uh, we have been commissioned by the Lord, the Great Commission, to go out to preach the good news of the gospel, to make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're to carry that, that message. We have to kind of be careful in that doctrine that we're all apostles because there is this like new apostolic reformation idea that, that, that we can be apostles like the 12 apostles and the Holy Spirit is establishing new doctrine like your life is the Bible like Paul the Apostles was. That's goofy. It contradicts what Scripture says. But no, it means to be sent with authority. And so he's saying, listen, I am sent with authority, and I'm separated unto the gospel of Jesus. Separate. 
I love that Paul, in his credentials, he makes that statement right out of the gate. Man, I'm a bondservant. I belong to the Lord. I'm an apostle. He's the one who sent me, but I'm separate from the world. We are to be, as Christians, separated unto God. Jesus said of us that we are in this world, but we are not of this world. And how's that going? As I study through these passages, and I ask myself, how are you doing with that? How are we doing with that? corporately as a church? How are we doing with this idea of being set apart for Jesus in our lives, practically, with our time, with our finances, with our attitudes, with our devotion, with our behavior? Like, is there a difference when people look at my life between me and my unbelieving neighbors? Is, is there a contrast there? Or do we live just like the world and then slap a Christian on my life like you would slap a bumper sticker on a car? I've heard it said by a pastor once. He said, if you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you of the crime? Oh, that's interesting. Or when people hear that you're a Christian, they're like, whoa, no way, you're a Christian, that's crazy. I hope people don't say that about us when we tell them. I hope they say, oh, I knew there was something that was weird about you. <laughs> that was Were to be like Hermie. You guys remember Hermie? He was the elf dentist on Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, that classic. Why am I such a misfit, right? Why don't I fit in? That's really the way that it, we should have this thing. Like, why don't we fit in with the world? Uh, there is a level of compromise that is happening in the church at an alarming rate. Where we are not separate unto God and separate from the world. But we've become compromised, and we've let all sorts of crazy ideologies into the church, critical race theory and gender ideologies, and, and let's just you know, go down to the pub and throw back a, a sixer while we talk about Romans, and so all these crazy things that we're standing on a, a, as doctrine because we've, we've compromised, and it's not the way that the Lord would have it. It's not his plan for us. There is a, a contrast. We are to be the salt and the light. Man, salt, it does a lot of things. It makes things taste good. It preserves things. But you know what salt does? Inevitably, it makes you thirsty. That's why when you have pizza for dinner, you wake up like 2 o'clock in the morning like, oh, I need some water. We're to create a thirst in our communities, in our homes, in our workplace, school environment for Jesus. We're to be the light. And we're to shine the light on where you can find salvation. Proverbs tells us that the wicked, they stumble as in the darkness, that they don't even know it trips them up. You can say, hey, look, I know the way. Follow me. I know it seems weird, and I know you called me a Jesus freak last week, but come to church. Check this thing out. We're to be the salt and the light. And Jesus said, if the salt loses its saltiness, what good is it but to be thrown out and trampled under the feet of men? Like, what good is salt that isn't salty? Like, really, could you imagine? It's like, I feel like that right now when I put salt on my feet. I'm like, no, more salt, more salt. I've actually gotten into the habit of tasting food before I put salt on it as a matter of respect. <laughs> Learned that one. Uh, but what good is salt if it's not salty? It, it's, it's kind of worthless was Jesus' point. Like, it's not good for much. It's not living out what it was created for. But what good is a, a compromising worldly Christian? Say, like, oh, man, ouch. And if that hits, man, it's not because I'm trying to be a jerk. That's it's because we need, to, we need to not compromise. Listen, I'm not up here trying to beat you guys up. 
I'm just saying the Lord has a purpose and a plan for our lives. Be careful about falling into that trap. And so Paul says, man, I, I'm, a, I'm a bond servant. I'm an apostle. I'm separated unto the gospel. Separated. Paul's saying the Lord has a plan for me to, to preach the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the good news. It's more than just the good news. It's the life-saving, life-altering, world-shattering. And this is how you uh, are saved sort of news. That, that Jesus was God incarnate. That God became a man. Lived a perfect life dwelt amongst us, died on the cross as our substitution, was buried three days, rose again. That's the gospel. Now, if we believe on that with all of our hearts, we confess that with our then we're saved. That's the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel that was promised beforehand in the scriptures. Now, I know we're just about out of time, but I'm going to take a minute to geek out on you guys because this is so cool. You've heard me talk about the scarlet thread right, that runs through the Bible. So what Paul is saying is, listen, I, I belong to the Lord. My life is his. I've been separated unto the gospel. This good news that Jesus was coming to, to rescue us from our sins that is spoken out beforehand in the prophets. Paul is saying, listen, this whole thing that I'm proclaiming to you about Jesus, the gospel, this isn't new. This isn't something that I made up, but there's a scarlet thread that runs through the Bible. All of the scriptures talk and touch on who Jesus is from the very beginning, from Genesis 3, 15. Uh, the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel. Uh, it, it says there, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your heel and you will strike, or crush your head and, and you will strike his heel. This, this introduction of the curse on mankind because of Adam's sin and God's provision for a savior, uh, or provision uh, to save us from our sin. Uh, it's right from the beginning. This idea that we need to be saved from our sins. Genesis chapter 5, it, it continues on. And this is really cool. Genesis chapter 5 is just a genealogy. If you just looked at it, you'd be like, oh man, why is this even in the Bible? We're going to study through this. Adam begot. It's just like, what's going on? We get it. Adam and Seth and Enosh and Kenan and Mahalil and Jared and Enoch and Methuselah and uh, Lamech and Noah. And we understand. Here's the interesting thing about that. When you just read through it in Hebrew, in their Hebrew names, you're like, that's a bunch of names of dudes. But when you read through what those names mean in the English, it's very interesting. Because in Hebrew, Adam means man. Or in, in English, Adam means man. Seth means appointed. Enosh means mortal. Kenan means sorrow. Mahalil means the blessing. So, so what I'm getting at is when you read through all these names, this genealogy, just in English, this is what it says. Man appointed mortal sorrow, the blessed God shall come down, teaching his death shall bring the despairing rest and comfort. Come on. Are you kidding me? Amen. Yes. Amen. Uh, all through scripture, we see this picture of Jesus. Isaac, of his father Abraham, taking him up Mount Moriah to... to to sacrifice his only son, his only chosen son. That whole picture, perfect picture of Jesus. And then there's the ram stuck in the thicket. God will provide himself a sacrifice. And the Exodus story, where the lamb was slain, where the blood was put over the doorpost in the form of a cross, that death would pass over and newness of life would come, that you'd be freed from the bondage of slavery. It speaks to salvation. Isaiah 53, over and over and over and over again, we see this. And that's what Paul's saying. All of Scripture points to Jesus. Man, I'm sorry that I, I geek out on this stuff, but it's amazing. The, the layers, we barely even scratched the surface. And then Paul says, listen, 
Jesus, he's born of the seed of David. We know that he was a man, but not only was he a man, but he was also the son of God. How do we know? Because of the resurrection. The resurrection is so important. This whole, this, this, this scarlet thread, this, this person of Jesus, our savior, how do we know that he is who he said he was? How do we know that he's not some just ancient crazy man with a Messiah complex who said, no, I'm the son of God, I'm the savior of the world? Because he proved who he was. He said, I'm going to be killed, but three days I'm going to rise again. When the Pharisees wanted a sign, what sign did he give them? He said, you'll get one sign out of me, and that'll be the sign of Jonah. What happened to Jonah? Swallowed up by a well in the belly of the whale for three days, and he was barfed up on the shore the third day. Same, I mean, Jesus wasn't barfed up by a well, but you know what I'm saying? See the picture, the imagery. The resurrection is so key. It's the hinge which the door of Christianity swings upon without the resurrection Man, it all falls apart because anybody can claim anything, but proving it is a whole other story. There are those who did. There are those who now proclaim to be Jesus the Messiah. But they're not because they haven't defeated death like Jesus did. And it is the most verifiable, greatest moment in all of human history. The resurrection wasn't something that was done in some back, dark alley. It was done in front of everybody. More than 500 eyewitnesses. Jesus hung out for 40 days, eating with people, hanging out with people, teaching people, drink. The world would say, you know, that fairy tale thing of Jesus. And it's verifiable fact. All you got to do is study it out a little bit. And then Paul kind of finishes up with this. Well, he finishes up his introduction, <laughs> which is all we're going to get through. He says, he, he talks about, uh, you know, this idea of grace. Man, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from our Lord and Father, or from our God and our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, man, through Jesus, man, we have received grace and apostleship. We are, are called saints. What is grace? It's unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. I don't deserve to be saved. You don't deserve to be saved either. You know what we deserve? Death. But God showed us mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's like if I was driving through town, 100 miles an hour, in a 25. This is a completely, I have never done this, just so you know. Like, really, I have never done this. Driving through town at 100 miles an hour, and you get pulled over, and the cop is like, dude, come on. You, actually, you'd probably be met with guns drawn, I bet, if you're doing that. Uh, but the, the cop comes up and says, listen, I should throw you in jail, but I'm going to let you off with a warning. See, what I deserved would be to be writing letters to my family from the Stony Lonesome for the next couple years. But he showed me mercy and let me off. And, and then on top of that... He says, oh, I got something for you, buddy. And he pulls out a $10,000 check. This is from the department. We just want you to bless you. you know. That's grace. And the Lord has done so much more for us than that. He's not given us what we deserve, and he's given us what we don't deserve, that we might be saints. It's sainthood isn't something you achieve by being great or walking in obedience. It's, you know, the whole idea of the saints and the Catholic Church and these idols, and it's all wrong. The Bible teaches that, that we're saints because we're Christians. Why? Because of what Jesus did on the cross and nothing else. By grace through faith and that not of yourselves. That's it. It's beautiful. And so Paul's life, man, as we just close up this morning, man, what a, an encouraging story. 
that Jesus got a hold of this man who was so far out there, so full of himself, and saved him. Filled him with the Holy Spirit. He went from being governed by his own ambitions and his own lusts to being a bondservant of Jesus, being separated from the world, separated unto God, and walking out God's plan in his life. And this little short, goofy guy who would say, come on, did wonderful things for the Lord. And so as we close, you know, a couple questions that I've, I've posed to myself personally that I'll pose to you guys this morning. And that is, who owns you? What is it that you live for? Who is the king of your life? Are you a slave to this world or are you a slave to righteousness? Are you separated unto the Lord? Like, are you walking that out? Or are you conforming to this world? Because God has a plan for you. And God has a plan for me as well. And that plan begins with surrender. It begins with us coming face to face with Jesus and saying, you know what, I want more of you and I want less of me. And as we come to the table this morning, and what a wonderful opportunity it is to just do some self-evaluation and say, Lord, where am I? Am I truly governed by, am I living my life out for you? Or have I fallen into that place where I've, I've, I'm walking in compromise? And here's the thing. Again, if you're not saved in this place, if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, if your sins have never been forgiven, and do that business. You don't have to come up here and you don't have to make any public proclamation. Again, in the book of Romans, it tells us that we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead and we're saved. And you just pray that. Lord, I believe that you are who you say you are. And I know I'm a sinner. And I know that the wages of sin is death. But I surrender to you and I repent. Come into my life. There's no special series of words that you can say. You just go before God honestly. And do that work. But for a lot of us, we're, we're already Christians in this room. But it's so easy to get to that place to where we're living lives that maybe aren't separated anymore. It's, it, it happens so gradually. This is a wonderful time to say, you know what, Lord? I'm going to evaluate those things in my life that just don't belong. And I want to walk in all that you have for me. And that's my prayer for us, for both services, is that Lord, you would get a hold of our hearts and transform our lives like you did with Paul, the man who wrote this letter, the man you used so much. And so as you come to the table, and just do that work with the Lord. Remember, rejoice, be refreshed in the reality of what Jesus did for us. It's not about you being a good person or a bad person. It's about trusting in what Jesus has already done on the cross. He said, it's finished. It's done. All we need to do is trust him for it. So Lord, we thank you so much for the way that you used Paul. Lord, for the, the testimony that he has left behind. Lord, help us to be those who are surrendered to you. Or those who are not compromised but separate. Lord, thank you so much for your grace and for your mercy. And as we come to the table, Lord, you, you knew when you instituted communion, Lord, in the upper room with your disciples, 
when you told them, as often as you do this, do so in remembrance of me. As often as you have wine and bread, as often as you have dinner, remember. And Lord, you knew that, that we would need to remember often what it is that you've done for us and what that means for us. That we're transformed from being full of us to being full of you. And please do that work again in our hearts this morning as we come to the table and remember and reflect and rejoice and repent and just do the work that, that we need to do with you this morning. Thank you that you're available. Thank you, Lord, that, that you were beaten and that you were bruised and that you were bound that we might go free. Lord, that you were nailed to the cross that your blood might flow and blot out our sins that we might be justified just as though we'd never sinned at all. Lord, and as we come, we, we remember with thankful hearts, Lord. We love you. We praise you. We thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's Word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit siskiyouchristianfellowship.com. Thank you.